0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hustle Share podcast is brought to you by Union Digital Bank a fully digital bank with a mission to empower every Filipino everywhere by providing easy access to digital financial services for consumers and businesses. Union Digital Bank partners with startups to co-create financial products to meet the needs of their customers. Contact Union Digital Bank to explore how they can power your platform with embedded financial services. For more information about Union Digital Bank, please see their website at www.uniondigitalbank.io. Stay updated by following them on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Also by Shoppable Business, your number one source for procuring products for your business in the Philippines. Discover authentic branded products online. Shop bulk, save big, and secure authentic products with official sales invoices at Shoppable Business today. And also brought to you by Dragon Pay. DragonPay is the pioneer in alternative payments in the Philippines. DragonPay is the reigning fintech of the year in last year's Philippine Fintech Festival. Sign up now at www.dragonpay.ph.
2: I think the question that each entrepreneur has to ask himself is Are you before your peak, at your peak, or past your peak? I think each entrepreneur should be able to answer that question. And most of the time, many people do deals when they're past their peak.
1: Welcome to Hustle Share, the podcast that features the daily grinds of unique hustlers around the world to show not our differences, but that our hustles are very much alike. Now, here's your host, Ronster Baityong.
0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Hustle Share podcast. I'm super excited because this is our Uh, last episode before we officially set our fifth anniversary. And again, it's our fifth anniversary season. We get our best of the best every year. We've been doing this for, again, uh, during around February 28th because that's when I relaunch Hustle Share. And this guy, you should know about this guy because this guy is the best in what he does in the world of capital markets. Mergers and acquisitions I've had a chance to meet him pre-pandemic When I was just doing Chatbot PH Before I even sold it We've dabbled into what what could have been But again I'm very fortunate to have on the show The founder and CEO Of Portman Klein Mr. Danny Ibasco Danny, welcome to the show
2: Hi Good
0: afternoon, uh, Ron. Good to see you. I know you're you're used to the applause whenever you're playing a uh, uh, jazz, but this is gonna <laughs> be the first time you get a big applause during a, a business environment like this. Okay, I know you you're the best in the business in what you do, but before I get carried away, Danny, I need to ask you the million dollar question. Danny, what's your hustle?
2: Yeah. So, Ron, I mean. Um... Basically, I'm an investment banker by nature. So what we normally do is we try and help entrepreneurs um, grow their businesses, either grow their businesses through organic means, which means raising money for them. Mm-hmm. And when they run out of sources of organic growth, we help them acquire companies. Oh. Because, at that, you know, time is very valuable. And if you want to grow your business or you want to scale up your business, you won't have all the time in the world to grow it organically. So. What we normally do is we help our clients acquire other businesses so that they can scale up much faster um, Absolutely. in a world where results are, you know, where the investors or the capital markets are very demanding about quick results. Correct. And then we also help entrepreneurs as the journey later on in life where they basically reach their peak or they mm. basically haven't solved their succession issues. And uh, we basically help divest sell their businesses for value. We help advise entre- entrepreneurs at what point would it be optimal to sell your business. So we basically cover the whole life cycle of an entrepreneur from growth, inorganic growth, and monetization of their businesses.
0: That is amazing. And that's very, very interesting and very timely because in a world of startups, right? Um, what every startup founder, at least in tech, is aiming for is a, not even just unicorn. Everyone wants an exit, not because of their own, but because to also give back to those investors that helped out. So that's what I really want to dissect here. And we've never had a chance to really fully dissect the majority of the time we talk to VCs. I don't even remember having a PE on board yet, but that's what we will be discussing later on, on what the right time is to, from a big, big fish, actually start acquiring. And also from the point of view of a small fish or an up-and-coming entrepreneur to start selling. But before I get carried away or even talk about those things, I need you to buckle up real quick, Danny. Because we need to dissect first your origin story. Because we're going to have to ride the Hustle Share time machine.
2: (laughs) Boom. Yeah, so about my background. Okay, yeah, I, I guess when I talk about my background, it will be, you'll clearly know what my age is, which is... <laughs>
0: <laughs> what? We're just, just the, the same, same age, Danny. Danny. What are you talking about?
2: <laughs> so basically, I graduated at the time when uh, the Philippines was not in a good situation. I, right. I graduated at the time when Ninoy Aquino was shot. Oh, my gosh. When the economy was in the doldrums, when the best mm-hmm. dollar exchange rate, we had hyperinflation. And where the job market was very bleak. Mm-hmm. So I finished De La Salle University. And I felt that prospects when I finished school was very bleak. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw this magazine. It's called Euro Money. And I saw this magazine where you had pictures of very good-looking, flashy bankers in suits. And nice. I saw all the glamour on all the deals they were doing. I just said, I want to be like that. So I basically, <laughs> I, the career I wanted to do was basically, you know, I had I was very determined to make it to Wall Street. So, nice. I'm from Manila, which was a very um, dark time when I finished school, mm-hmm. I basically wanted to find my way to Wall Street. So, uh, what happened? I was quite fortunate um, to have basically um, maybe two years after college joined an offshore banking unit then called first the First National Bank of Boston. I think I joined Bank of Boston, right? That's my first job. And that was my ticket to get out of the Philippines. So I think after two years working here in Manila, I think I got the attention of many people in Hong Kong and in Boston. And they said, look, we want to put you in the merchant bank in Hong Kong. Uh, Why don't you move to Hong Kong? We'll relocate you there. And capital markets business out uh, covering the region. So I did Mm -hmm. that. And I lived in Hong Kong probably... um, Five years, six years after that, Mm -hmm. it was it was pre nineteen ninety seven. Hong Kong was a real place to be a banker. It was like New York of Asia. Right, Um, you know, I got i had a very young age. I got exposed to multi billion dollar deals. that's amazing! It's something to be grateful. And then I think because of the success of some of the transactions I did in Hong Kong, they shipped me to the United States, and I basically moved to Boston. I worked in the head office in Boston, and I covered basically emerging markets like Brazil, Argentina, Mexico. Basically, a lot of the developing world. Oh my gosh! I got promoted to that desk, and I also Mm. covered a lot of the Fortune 500 companies in the U.S. I I I got to know the United States very well because my my one of my first jobs there was sales. And what was sales? I love it. Market mean. I would basically fly from Boston. I would cover the Midwest and I would I would take a plane from Boston, land in O'Hare in Chicago, rent a car, knock on doors and go to towns like Racine, Wisconsin. Alabama, St. Louis. And just do a lot of cold calling, you know? I learned a lot of my sales skills by just going through that and learning america that way by driving knocking on doors right selling a lot of products to basically the fortune 500 companies and basically products designed to serve their subsidiaries in very volatile emerging markets like brazil argentina mexico so i was basically covering general motors mcdonald's Rouse, lina all those big names i'm talking really about their international businesses in the emerging world so mm-hmm. i was very lucky to, to have gone through that i learned america that way i easily take no for an answer i'm not i when, when people say no when you do sales calls it doesn't hurt me as much as it did before mm-hmm. i got used to it but uh, <laughs> but uh, that was it and then i think um volatility i think as years passed by the world normalized Correct. A lot of the problems that beset the Philippines that I described and which also affected a lot of the developing world gone away, it normalized. So I thought about moving back to Asia. So they shipped me uh, back here in Asia to head the entire Asia Pacific business. Um, And I had, uh, I was covering Singapore, Japan, uh, Taiwan, you know, all the different countries. And I was probably lucky to be one of the highest ranking. uh, minorities in a white anglo-saxon organization that's so that 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 was something that i was quite quite grateful for um and uh and i managed to negotiate a return to manila my hometown as opposed to hong kong and Mm -hmm. singapore (laughs) wow Um, and with that i was able to meet my wife i I got married then suddenly i uh, i got An opportunity to work in uh, another firm called Bear Stearns, which is a Wall Street firm. And that moved us back to Hong Kong. And under Bear Stearns, I basically was running the Southeast Asian business for Bear Stearns. Oh, my gosh. That involved basically M&A, fundraising, capital markets, the whole gamut. So I was covering basically the non-China market, basically Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And all that stuff. And I I basically headquartered myself in Singapore at that time. And I think after working as a professional for many, many years, I I got tired of working. You know, I think uh, after the financial crisis, Wall Street suddenly changed. A lot of restrictions happened. A lot of regulations Mm -hmm. happened. So the art of deal-making has gone. Basically, it's been a highly regulated industry. And I felt it was time to move on. So I I basically decided to become an entrepreneur. I love it. After Bear Stearns. I think I've had enough. Oh, I also had stints in between. I was in venture capital with Hambrick and Quist, which is basically a a San Francisco based BC firm. I had a couple of gigs in between, but I got just tired of corporate life. I just got tired of, you know, working for big corporations where there was too much politics, too much activities were highly regulated. Yep. There's no creativity anymore. So I put up Fortman Klein in 2007. Mm. And Fortman Klein was basically, I created Fortman Klein as the firm for families, for entrepreneurs, for founders. It's a business that's not supposed to help Ayala or chase the big names like BLD. I wanted to make the customer wow, be the founder. So we felt that that segment of the market was not covered by Wall Street. Yes. and I think there was a big opportunity to basically be a Wall Street banker to the entrepreneurial segment of the
0: market and doing it in our home turf too so Jenny I want to uh, track back a little bit so I love that you outlined the whole career but I like to go deep into how you got things done in between these stops so I'll go all the way back to the start right you mentioned mm-hmm. that you did sales in the midwest which is very very cold in the in the winter and spring months not a place you want to be in. <laughs> In, during the months of October to probably March of, of the year. It's, it's, it's punishing out there. But I want to understand, Danny. So you mentioned you did sales. But every single time you did, uh, uh, of course, the, the, the persuasion business is there. But this is still banking. What yeah. other skills did you develop through this time that allowed you to really solidify these skills uh, that you, you've doubled down on Aside from the door knocking and, you know, the rejection business and persistence in between. Yeah,
2: I think, you know, because finance is often considered as a very technical business, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of jargon. There's a lot of um, sophistication, particularly when you talk about financial derivatives and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I think the key to success is being able to communicate all these complex products in a very simple, layman fashion. Correct. I used to have an Indian assistant that does all the alphas and the gammas, but <laughs> I'm the one who paraphrases all his lingo into something that the street understands. Gotcha. And I think the key to success is being able to communicate very clearly and precisely, and at the same time, listen to exactly what the customer wants and understand uh-huh. what the problem is, diagnosing what the problem is, and coming up with a solution that's appropriate. As opposed to just trying to sell widgets, you know, I mean,
0: <laughs> or features or whatever. And it's this is true. A lot of startup founders that I mentor, and I at one point I was like this: like people always say, "All right, hey, this is gonna be this API, this blah blah blah." Don't sell me features. Sell me why I should use your product and how is that gonna make me my life right. better. It doesn't really matter how you do it. All I really want is a solution to my problem and how you're right. gonna do it. How much is it gonna cost me? What's the next step?
2: Exactly, exactly. I think I think that's the key. Um, being able to diagnose and prescribe and uh, communicate it in a very easy, user-friendly manner.
0: Exactly. That's amazing. So now, okay, I'll, I'll uh, fast-forward a bit to that point. Because again, referencing your LinkedIn and you literally told us every single stop. I love that you went into detail. But going as in as a Pinoy in Boston and you became the managing director... Of the Bank of Boston, you did that for fourteen years. Going to Hong Kong, going to Boston. At the end of the day, let's just call it what it is. If you go to America right now, there's still a glass ceiling or a bamboo ceiling they call it for Asians to thrive. What was the challenges for you being in a minority, being Pinoy even um, purebred that you had to go there and really do the trade, uh, other than the of course the job itself that you had to overcome because th- we don't have a we have a handicap being Pinoy and being a worldwide exec isn't normal in a white-dominated space. How did you get over these humps and what were those humps? Well, I think it's all mental. I, it's all a mental process, right? If you if you enter the room with confidence and you don't yes.
2: basically think about that glass ceiling, I don't think it will affect you because I come in that room with confidence. Yes. And at the same time, if you have that confidence, everyone will see it, right? Correct. If you match that confidence with results, you earn respect. And I think Mm. what's really important in those kind of organizations is getting the respect. If people respect you, no matter what race you belong, I think uh, you you know that's the key to success. And I think the Americans with the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant community, I think it's even harder, right? Mm. But I think if you're able to talk to them at the same level. And not in a condescending way and have the confidence and the results to match your confidence, you will be part of their inner circle. They may be the head of Asia. Yeah. Right. I mean, I had Japanese, I had Singaporeans. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. Now, okay. You're absolutely right in that sense. Just This is the fault of Filipinos sometimes, especially overseas. They come in and they're like, "Hi, sir," blah blah blah. They have here yeah, and whatnot. When in reality, a lot of them are equally as competent or even better. Just don't say "po." Oh, don't
2: say "po." Oh. I think our problem is we're so we always say "po, oh, sir," "po, oh, sir."
0: Don't do that. Correct. And then once you really deliver that respect that you were talking about becomes your reputation, and that Correct. precedes you eventually. I went through this, Danny, as well because again, podcast network Asia had to typically evolve into becoming like a podcast BPO through our product pod machine. Every time I have to go to the US, but when I come there, I have my head held high like, yo, we're the biggest in Southeast Asia. We've done 300 podcasts. Nobody's ever done that at that scale here in our region. Mm -hmm. And I'm here not to be just happy to be here. I'm here to literally show you that we're the best in the business and we can help it out. And we're perfectly good in English and we can help you out for a fraction of the cost. And that same approach again not having the mentality that's happy to be here type of thing comes a long way that's actually probably half the job already because you have you come in with the thing and the problem with doing it in the philippines is if you do that people call you ay mayabang this guy is uh, so full of himself but in reality half the job is that you right. just you need to have that confidence Now, danny i want to know a few more before we take our first break you ran bank of boston for 14 years of course you need to be extra competent to make those done because the name of the game is results, deals, and whatnot. But what leadership traits did you develop over time by running the Bank of Boston again from multiple stints around the world? I think I'm so fortunate. I had a good boss who was uh, a
2: model for me. So I basically empowered. I'm not the dictator type of boss. I basically try to lead from behind. I basically support the front, the people in the front line. I give them all the ammunition they need to succeed with their clients. I lead from behind, Mm. right? I don't lead from the top and dictate, right? I'm like the warehouse that provides all the ammunition to the front line.
0: You're a very loaded warehouse.
2: (laughs) The leadership style is basically all about empowerment. You know, I think it's all about trust, it's about knowledge transfer, you know, and uh, I think people would be, be a lot more motivated working for someone like that than working for a dictator or a leadership
0: from a the top type of approach. Got it. Sounds good. Now let's take a first break. And when we come back, we will now talk about the evolution of Portman clients in 2007, 2008. What was it like when you took the leap and you became your own entrepreneur to really help out entrepreneurs as well? Well, let's talk about that more after the break.
1: That's greenlight.com slash ACAST.
0: Hey, Hustlers. How are companies like Pizza Hut, Tech in Asia, and Love Bonito saving $28,000 a year? Well, Aspire is an all-in-one finance solution designed for modern businesses. Over 15,000 companies across Asia are using Aspire to streamline business financial processes, saving both time and money. Now, Aspire understands the demand of your business, and these are their offers lightning-fast international transfers enabling money movement across 130-plus countries, the best FX rates with no hidden fees ensuring transparency, and multi-currency accounts in US dollars, euros, Great British Crowns, Singaporean Dollar, Indonesian Rupiah, and more, facilitating transactions in multiple currencies. And guess what? Opening an account can be done 100% online, making access to a global business account effortless. Aspire works with thousands of startups across Asia, offering an easy way to open a business account to receive investments from VCs. Aspire is backed by global top-tier VCs including Sequoia and Y Combinator and has been recognized by CB Insights as one of the top 100 most promising fintechs globally. Join over 15,000 businesses across Asia that have already made the switch to Aspire and experience the future of business finance. For more details, visit AspireApp.com. That's A-S-P-I-R-E-A-P-P.com. Again, that's AspireApp.com. And let's make business finance simple, integrated, and borderless together. We're living in weird times, so EsquireMag.ph is here to remind you about all things that matter, from current events, culture, style, food, money, cars, so you can have a feeling and can form an opinion about all aspects of the world you live in. EsquireMag.ph, the single best source for everything you love, intelligent and stylish, timely and timeless, substantial and irreverent. And a little bit weird. Everything that matters is here. Esquarmag.ph. And we're back from the break. We are still with Danny Ibasco that told us the amazing path he did in the world of investment banking again. How many Filipinos can you say that went through this? There's not a lot. Uh, probably Danny's the only one who's carved out his own space and put the name and the flag of the Philippines everywhere he went. But again, Danny, you had to scratch the itch. You made the leap to put up your own firm. Now, when you did your own firm, again, 2007, 2008, this is where the real estate bubble also just burst. The big short happened, right? How difficult was it to get the ground running? And what were the early struggles you had to overcome during this time?
2: Very good question. I mean, my timing was so bad. (laughs) <laughs> I, so I started the business, uh, I had an existential problem in the first year. Oh, my so God. I think we had a pan strategy. The first deal we did was in Indonesia. But what really saved us was really the Philippines because the Philippines was relatively insulated from the global financial crisis. Yes. Banks were quite provincial in the way they were thinking. So I think the exposure of banks had to the top to the subprime crisis in the U.S. was very minimal. And I think the government at the time did the right thing. They privatized the power sector. And when they privatized the the power sector, my firm was so lucky. We handled almost like 80% of all those transactions. When Napa was broken up, they had to sell the transmission assets, the generation assets. And I was just so lucky to be at the right time in the right place. It's just like you're in a soccer pitch. A corner kick was made, and you happened to be at the right place.
0: <laughs> you and just had to want it ball. like that. Right. right? So,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I helped, for example, Henry C. and Robert Coyuto acquire the transmission grid from the Philippine government for $3.9 billion. Dollars. What? I helped San Miguel Corporation become the largest independent power producer by buying over 1,000 megawatts of generation capacity oh future.
0: my
2: gosh so that was the biggest transfer of wealth from the public sector to the private sector at that time right. particularly when valuations were low at the at the, at the time of the financial crisis yeah. yes i think i was so lucky and i think at the same time there was a general distrust of wall street but firms like me suddenly became sought after for being mm-hmm. and then and I managed to be the investment banker to some large groups. Like an example is San Miguel. I mean, we grew with it. When San Miguel decided to diversify from being a food and beverage company to other things, I was principally involved in many of the things they did. Um, I love it. When they bought Meralco, when they bought the power assets from the Philippine government, when mm-hmm. they expanded the toll roads, when they got into PAL, when they got into bulk water. So mm-hmm. I just grew with that. I, I just grew with them. And I think uh, at the same time, the C family uh, also was diversifying. Uh, they bought the transmission grid. They bought Chevron's business. So mm. I benefited from that. That whole transition from Wall Street to the emergence of boutique firms like me, right, where we were servicing the big guys. We didn't need to be big to service the big guys. It was basically trust. I think the most important thing in this business is to gain the trust of very important people.
0: Correct. It's not the firm, but rather the trust that you get from very important That's amazing. But the trust, here's the thing, Danny, you, you can't just get the, the trust if you don't even get involved in the deal flow. That's what I want to understand. Just, yes, luck comes in, but luck is pre- when preparation meets opportunity. And you've been prepared ever since. But what I want to know, and this is a lot of what entrepreneurs really will have to do, regardless whether you like it or not, you're going to have to network. How did you build that network so efficiently when, of course, you've made your killing around the world, your reputation precedes you. But if you're going to have to go through the weeds, it's, semi, it's, it's going to be a little bit like the Midwest hustle you did again and a bit, a bit I think, door-to-door. Like. I think
2: it's different. In the United States, it's it's a lot of gold going. But in Asia, it's more of word-of-mouth referrals. I think in the U.S., cold calling is more permitted. But in Asia, it's all about referrals, word of mouth. I think when you do a good job for someone, basically, they can be your lifetime customer.
0: Correct.
2: As long as you do good deals for them, they can be your lifetime customer. Word spreads around. And when word spreads around, the network spreads, right? Correct. So I think if you do good deals and good service, when you offer good deals and good service, I think that's the recipe to... The good networking right mm-hmm. word gets around oh my god fortman helped me with this problem oh they helped me with this deal that i thought can never get done oh they saved us from bankruptcy you know i mean when word of that comes i mean the network it grows right is being able to do good things for your clients
0: right that's amazing now danny i want to zero in on, on one thing right so while you're building the boutique firm, I want to understand who you you're surrounded yourself with because, of course, the bar is always going to be set by you. World standard, the best in the business right there. But, of course, you cannot do it alone. You have to sur- surround yourself with uh, with people That's that can also deliver. That's a good question. So, what I did, I didn't have
2: too much capital to start the business with. So, I came from Singapore and I said, what's the cost of a fresh graduate starting salary and i said okay. i think it was 50 pesos at that time okay i'll take 10 of them wow I'll of them and i'll train them i'll train them myself wow because i was i was when i was young i had the benefit of being trained by the best right so i said i told myself why don't i do the same thing i get like 10 of them and i train them myself and believe me i think it's you know have you have you are you fun about watching uh world cup soccer I mean, do you remember the time when Germany had a lot of unknown players Right. Uh, and they were all young, right. but they made the semifinals and the finals, whereas mm-hmm. England had a lot of star players and prima donnas, but they didn't even qualify. Exactly. So that's what I did. I basically built a team that was full of young, bright kids that I trained. Unknown. Mm. So I'm no stars. I just trained them myself. Right now, probably they're, they're stars of their own.
0: Right. Nice And for them to be trained by you specifically Oh my god <laughs> They're lucky That included fixing the grammar right? Everything, looking at
2: each of the models I basically trained them well So I got that young, inexpensive work done And I complemented that with retired executives
0: ah.
2: Because I wanted to focus on certain industries Like healthcare, power, etc So I got retired executives that work in the healthcare industry the power industry, rather than playing golf, I said, why don't you, are you open to some consulting gigs where I can give you a young kids and you work on this deal with us? Amazing. Give us your knowledge about the industry. You share with us everything that you know about the industry and advice us properly Mm -hmm. on how to do the transaction. So without too much capital, I was able to deliver a high level of quality service through a combination of young energetic talent, Plus, retired wisdom from retired
0: executives, and you mix it up, I mix it up. Amazing. Now, again, Danny, this is something that a lot of the, the layman's or the the normal people that uh, or even just normal uh, casual entrepreneurs or tech startup founders don't even know how this works. Walk me through, like the high level lang. You don't have to go through the the the, the weeds, right? But how does a deal typically happen? Because who triggers it? Is it the big corporation? How does this work? Because I remember, I'm just going to digress a little bit. I remember I was so befuddled when you invited me to come to your office. Massive impossible syndrome. Like we don't, do we even, this is literally 2017, I remember. Because on the very same, the end of that year, I decided to sell the company, Chatbot Beach. And that's also changed my life overnight. Um, I was able to finally buy my mom a house, achieve my lifelong dream. But during that time, you left me with something that I, you don't know that I'm grateful for you forever. Though we didn't really do a deal, but you left me with the idea that this company that I built is acquirable. So I thank you wholeheartedly for that. But walk me through that process. How do you even get the deal flow? How does it start, start to finish? I think every company has a problem.
2: And think about me as like the corporate psychiatrist. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Every company has a problem. Okay. Right. You just have to know at what stage they are. Are they the stage of growth, marriage, or death? Okay. They're they're basically a product for each cycle. Okay. So think of me as like a a corporate psychiatrist. So um, I'll give you a good example. Um, Medical City is a client we've had for a long time. They started as a single property hospital in Ortigas. Right. And they wanted to basically grow. So we got them an investor that put in a billionaire from Singapore that put in $83 million in them. And together what? with and together with that, we basically expanded that into a network hospital of like six hospitals or seven hospitals with and 50 clinics. Right. Nationwide.
0: They're all over the malls now. So from a single
2: property in Ortigas into something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And then there were shareholder battles in between. Um, there were, you know, mediation needed to happen mm-hmm. to the point where it necessitated a sale of all the shareholders to a new buyer. Mm-hmm. And I, anyway, we did that last year where we finally sold that big network of hospitals and assets. Wow. One of the largest private equity firms in the world.
0: PE, okay, wow.
2: They so basically put in over $300 million. Holy
0: or, crap, that's amazing. Right? So,
2: so that's a good example of a problem where a company started with had growth aspirations, had problems in the middle, and needed to do something about all
0: the internal squabbles in this company. And what Fortman Klein does technically is facilitate this whole, okay, I know you have a problem, I'm the corporate psychiatrist. You guys come in with basically solutions on how yeah. fa- to financially solve this. And then you see it through, even yeah. you, to the buyer, you're finding a buyer. Whatever we prescribe, we execute for them. Amazing. And then
2: after the deal, I also added a management consulting business because I realized that a lot of work is needed after a deal is done. Of course. So I
0: put up a management consulting group here that does a lot of that work. Got it. To see through to that, that transition because it's never... Uh, beautiful. It's, the, the honeymoon period is short until <laughs> everything implodes all of a sudden. Like, oh my God, what is going on? Yeah, it's just that simple. I think
2: deals arise whenever you're able to diagnose their problems and come up with good solutions. And I think we normally get involved in deals when the stakes are high and when the consequences of not doing anything can be
0: disastrous. That is amazing. Now, I, I want to do a deep dive here now. Okay, so it looks like it's, it's supply and demand or even demand on demand. That's what you're matching. You're playing matchmaker here and of course, the ability to execute. This. So I'll just uh, go with the basics here. You said there's uh, three stages, whether they're growth or marriage or death, right? Mm-hmm. These are the three cycles of say a big company or wherever they are, right? How do you know it's time to make a deal? Because it's not just ma- deal making that's also there. And how do you then make sure that they are even willing to listen. Because sometimes probably the worst part is they they're, they fall on deaf ears. A lot of entrepreneurs that
2: don't listen, but there are a lot of entrepreneurs realize that you know, they're having problems. So I think the question that each entrepreneur has to ask himself is, are you before your peak, at your peak, or past your peak? I think each entrepreneur should be able to ask that,
0: answer that question. And most of the time, many people do deals when they're past their peak. Got it. So it's your prime technically. Are you still a do you still have one Herculean effort to do another thing? And when they're past their peak, the best move always is is it to acquire or is it to sell? How do you know which one is it to, to do? Yeah, I think when you're past your peak and you still want to remain
2: in the game, you acquire to basically maintain a competitive position, right? But okay. if you really think that you're past your peak. And there's
0: no more value add to your business, you might as well sell it. Got it. It's weird because um, the episode after this, after your episode, is uh, with Fred Wei And he's a classic example of a guy that he's probably tail end of his prime. And he decided, hey, Alaska is time to sell Alaska to a buyer. Perfect. Right? But the entrepreneurial drive is still there. It's not like, oh, he's now just chilling and whatever. It's still there. He's still super competitive as hell, right? But man, check that out. I've uh, had that after this episode. This is a precursor. So when those things happen, what are the hurdles you typically have to convince the entrepreneurs? Once they realize that, yeah, okay, I'm past my peak. Now what? Okay, well, I think we now have to say,
2: okay, we need to have a candid conversation. Really, how much is your business worth? Some people think so highly about their own company that it probably couldn't be sold in the market, right? You got to have a level discussion in terms of what's
0: realistic. Right. Now, how do you prepare those companies that say are eligible? Like like how we did it. I remember this process we had to pitch. is our business. Danny did a bit of a DD. Uh, Sorry if it was disappointing. We We didn't know our financials back then yet. But how do you know... Uh, if a company is acquirable or sellable Or how do you even prep a company To become sellable at all?
2: I think it's just like When your business is attractive, right? I think you've okay. got to work on making your business attractive Otherwise, you know, if it's not attractive You know, you've got to figure out What's your unique competence What is the distinct competence of your company? Yeah, I mean, we also have to do a strategic audit It's like, does your strategy really make sense In today's marketplace, right? There's a lot of deals that also happen Because of disruption. Like right now, we're seeing a lot of things now, particularly in tech, right? Where mm-hmm. the growth of tech is waning. E-commerce growth is, mat- is saturating. It's not growing at the same rate as it used to be. And a lot of big tech is now looking at acquisitions in the brick and mortar space. Right. And basically what they're thinking is, okay, if I get into the brick and mortar space, I like this because I can digitize them. <laughs> I can yeah. them. If they're too digitized, I won't buy them. I don't have any value to add. Right?
0: That's amazing.
2: So All right. M&A, we're beginning to see a confluence between online and offline, right? Where basically you will see big tech companies acquiring brick and mortar retailers mm-hmm. or brick and mortar fashion brands or brick and mortar, you know, sort of thing, right?
0: Got it. Sounds I like-
2: and I think many for for people, tech entrepreneurs, that probably will be listening here, right? I mean, you could be valuable. I mean, you could be valuable for brick and mortar players that don't have the tech, right? Correct. Or you should probably be thinking about expanding your business by looking at brick and mortar businesses that you can digitize. Mm. Because there's already a customer base. Sorry. There's already an existing business to digitize as opposed to trying to expand your business from
0: scratch and having to spend a lot on customer acquisitions of your own. Makes sense. That's an easy market and that's uncharted market that you can easily dominate with and grow at a faster pace. Then you're growing again at a rate right. that you you know you're happy. That's right. amazing. All right. Now let's take our last week and when we come back, we will now come back and again, discuss the nature of the capital markets, even the funding winter and everything else and of course, the advice of our amazing Danny Vasco to all entrepreneurs. Well, let's talk about that more after the break. Hey, hustlers. Wish there was an easy way to open a bank account and grow your money without the hassle of lengthy application process and income documents? Well, I got good news because today's sponsor, Uno Digital Bank, is here to help you achieve your financial goals. Enjoy monthly payouts with hashtag UnoEarn and flexible tenors with hashtag Unoboost. And we're back with a break. We are still, and I am in awe of Danny Vasquez. that told us the amazing stuff. Again, this is so rare. I don't get to have these conversations on a daily basis. And again, thank you, Danny, for allowing me to share is to the hustle share community to learn. But again, we've now talked about the readiness of, of startups being acquirable or companies being acquirable. But I want to talk about this funding winter, you being an LP and some funds and whatnot. What can you advise startups that you know the, the VC market or the PE market isn't as aggressive as it was in navigating these tough waters? Because you are saying this earlier as well. A lot of companies are also in distress right now. A lot of them are not going to make it. Let's just call it what it is. It's the year of reckoning this year because a lot of the people that had runway, if they didn't get gritty enough and become sustainable enough, they're probably going to die. And that's the nature of the beast. But how would you navigate these waters given that there's a funding winter, LPs and funds don't want to dish out checks out there?
2: Yeah, that's tough, right? I mean, I would look at other options, obviously, outside of VC market, right? I mean, to the extent that your business needs capital equipment or hardware, explore leases, vendor leasing, vendor financing without having to use equity right? Because everybody's always thinking about venture capital, venture capital. But if my business needs some equipment, why don't I just do leasing? Why don't I just lease them, right? It's less dilutive. It doesn't require too much equity. I would also start looking at M&A options, right? Because at the end of the day, what you should figure out is, what is the ecosystem of my business? My tech, who are the people in my ecosystem that will find me most attractive? Makes sense because when you are able to answer that question, you can start thinking about M and A options, right? Mm-hmm. Because if the whole ecosystem that you're supplying has a hole, and you can provide the need or that you can satisfy or you can fill up that hole, you probably can be an acquisition or a, or a candidate for strategic investment, right?
0: Got it. Think from ecosystem point. Got it. Now, if you're a startup that you you want to consider that M and A or an acquisition or an exit play. <laughs> What are the early things that they should at least prepare?
2: Obviously, it has to be past proof of concept. You should be able to demonstrate some success in your business. You know, got you got to revenue. have revenues. I think selling business plans is out of the question now. Right. You got to have past the proof of concept. You got to have some revenues. You got to have customers. You got to have a real business more right. than a business plan, right? And I think rather than also having to fund things on your own, it also might make sense to piggyback on the success of other people. Why don't you just partner with other people, mm. you know, uh, and piggyback on their success? Because if you piggyback on their, their success, you'll be successful.
0: Absolutely. You don't necessarily have, have to own everything, you know? God, that's amazing. Now, last last few questions before I let you go. I, we do have a hard stop. But Danny, you've had the luxury of being able to talk to so so many of the best entrepreneurs, not just in the country, but around the world. What are the characteristics that you've seen of the best of the best entrepreneurs that you've seen? And how do you think can other entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast emulate them as well?
2: Yeah, I think one of the most common things I see about the very successful entrepreneurs I deal with is they can see the future. They have their own narrative of what the future will look like. And they basically are often three steps ahead of them. They're like looking at three traffic lights ahead as opposed to just one traffic light. Yes. Then they have a clear idea as to where things are headed. They're good in identifying trends. They're good in identifying the
0: opportunities. And they take
2: very calculated
0: risks. That is amazing. Now, Danny, again, I wish we had more time and we had a hard stop. I want to be respectful of your time. If I lent you the keys, Danny, to the hustle-shared time machine. And you will talk to yourself, um, again, a little bit, a bit of a... Uh, uh, you, you go to the time machine and you have the ability to talk to your younger version of yourself before you even jumped onto the plane going to Boston, right? What would be that advice? What would you tell yourself knowing what you know now? Don't go where everybody goes. Don't follow where everybody goes. Do what you want to do on your own. That's amazing. Be contrarian, right? Because again, that's true. Because if you're following everyone, you're probably too late. <laughs> There's, and it's also a red ocean. Don't be a me too. Don't be a me too. Got it. Now, All right. Lastly, um, Danny, for any advice for entrepreneurs, you've seen so much of us, every mm-hmm. form and size, every ego and whatnot. What would be your advice for Filipino startup entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in the Philippines in order for them to maximize their own potential? Well, I think you got to learn because
2: what I see in many of the entrepreneurs here, and when I look at venture capital investments, they're mostly made to companies that are run by foreigners that move to the Philippines. Why? Yes. I look at many of the successful startups here, they used to work for foreign firms like Grab or Whatever, right? So I haven't yet really seen much true Filipino startups that have succeeded. Most of them are like immigrants from the US, Germany,
0: all that stuff. So
2: I would encourage, let's build our own competence. I mean, let's, let's learn from these foreigners and try to do things on our own.
0: Yep. And that's the key. Because when the locals are now able to compete with world-class founders, again, not not, not saying it's a bad thing. But that's the level you need to be operating in. That's when you really see network effects and exponential yeah. growth. There you yeah. go. That is amazing. Thank you so much, Danny. I wish we had more time and learned so much. And again, very, very big honor to have you on the show. But if people want to work with you and want to get your advice or even be at ready to be acquired or acquire wherever they are in their timeline, where do they go and how did they do that?
2: We have our website, fortmanclient.com. I think you will know how to reach us with that. We'll be happy to
0: entertain
2: any inquiries you may have.
0: That is amazing. Now, Danny, before I let you go, follow us on whatever podcast after you're listening to, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And to get, uh, if you want to see all the jargon, if we did say some jargon, it's going to be in the links on HustleShare.com. It's going to be in our show notes. And lastly, if you want to support HustleShare, just like Angelo Lee, Gab Abbott, and all the brands that sponsor and support HustleShare, please do check it out and subscribe at Premium.HustleShare.com. Again, Danny, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you. All right. And I'll see you guys in the next episode. Peace.